I would ask that you take your Bibles and let's turn to Acts chapter 2, the account of Pentecost as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles by Luke. We're going to start with the very first verse in just a moment and read through the 21st verse, the full account of this outpouring of God. One of the things I always think of when in this account we're told that the people of God were able to speak in all the languages of the world. I, I go back to that story in the Old Testament, which was the Tower of Babel. It's an interesting story, of course, that human beings would think that by our own ingenuity and our own engineering, uh, we could build a way to heaven all by ourselves, that we don't need God. Uh, we can just build a building big enough and we could live in the heavens. The problem, of course, is not just that we don't know where heaven is, if that's what we think, or we don't even understand how it is that you get there or where it is. But the problem of the story that it unleashes that when we decide we're going to live without God, that we, go, we are going to have this prideful uh, kind of attitude towards our existence, that it causes us then to become competitors with others. I can remember that scene where uh, in, in the movie uh, Out on a Limb, she uh, is standing there, believes that she's God. The other person there is standing, she, he believes he's God because they're teaching the Hindu faith in a New Age kind of way. And he says that he's God, and she says that she's God, and then she shoves him and says, no, 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 I'm God. And it's in that awareness that if you are not living with the risen God, with the Lord Almighty, the true God, and we're all gods, this human tendency to compete and to be competitors and combatants and to argue with one another and to try to be better than others uh, comes out. And it comes out then in religious form, just as it has come out in, in a nationalistic form. Rather than being a family of God where we are all brothers and sisters under a father, uh, the human race at that moment decided they were going to be on their own and they were going to live without God. And so since that time, uh, factions and, and all kinds of cliques and coalitions, separations uh, came into the human uh, race as it defines what the deepest uh, cause of that is, that we don't uh, acknowledge God our Father and that every human being is a brother and a sister and we're family and that these borders that we so easily create are not borders, when we divide then into our secret little languages and our secret and shared fears, we soon isolate. And so the world became fractured and broken and divided. Now that reality, uh, that we are more concerned with our borders than we are with our family of God, that we're more capable of creating barriers than bridges with one another is why Jesus had to come. Jesus came to bring us together so that we would love one another and love even the enemy rather than to isolate and compete and to be combative with them. And so we have this great solution on this Sunday, the story of Pentecost, the moment when the Holy Spirit reversed the isolation of language and brought us together into one family throughout all the world. 
and acknowledge that we are together in this human experience, a family of brothers and sisters. Now, that, that changing of the combative, competitive nature of humanity is, is a difficult thing for us to do. It's, it's not something that you can just do from the external saying, you guys must all just get along. It has to come from within in which we truly love and we truly love others as people, not as objects or as someone who can give us something that we want, but we truly love every person and they are of infinite value to us. And we will do whatever we can politically and economically and socially to be one with them uh, rather than to build the barriers and to, to create this combative atmosphere within the world. Now, that change, of course, occurred on the Feast of Pentecost, where this spring grain harvest, where they get together to celebrate having food, as we do with the Thanksgiving harvest in the fall, was the moment in which the people celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, you remember that in that moment, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has the thou shalt nots written in stone. And that it's at that moment that then we know, okay, you can't do these things and still live together as a family. You can't lie. You can't steal. You can't betray one another. You can't covet what others have. You can't dishonor parents. You, you've got to live together in this kind of stuff. But that external written in stone doesn't work. There has to be, of course, something written in the heart. And so Pentecost is the time when God chose to take the law written in stone and give the Holy Spirit that transforms the conscience and the heart of the individual such that we love as God loves. And we do what we would have them do unto us. Not just don't do all the things that we shouldn't do, but we do actively the things that, that God would have us do with one another. And so that guidance of God then is no longer written in stone, it's now written in the love of the heart. And the human heart now is changed. Now that heartfelt love of God that is given to us allows us to in fact live together in families, to live together as the family of God throughout all the earth. And we are here with one another because of his love. So on this Pentecost Sunday, it's almost 2,000 years, uh, since the Holy Spirit was first given to humanity and this has been permeating like a virus throughout the, the human race so that we begin to love more and more throughout all the nations. Yesterday the bishop was telling us of the revivals that are occurring throughout the world and uh, we've gone from one church in Israel to 40 churches in Israel, let alone what's happened in Egypt I think they said 300 or something new Free Methodist churches happening in Egypt. It's a tremendous day to be alive, such that God's love is being poured out, even in the Muslim nations, uh, where the faith there is not one of love. And so we have this great opportunity to, in fact, find unity across barriers and across borders and be one people speaking the language of God, understanding each other. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start with verse 1 and go through the 21st verse, which is the quotation from Joel that uh, Doug read earlier in the service. The NRV, NRSV translators call this the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. Now, as I said earlier in the service, wind and breath and spirit is the same ruach of God. Even to say ruach, you feel the breath. Yahweh is to breathe. Yeshua, Jesus, is to breathe. It's this breath of God that permeates them. They were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared upon them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, the hagias in the Greek language, the breath, even saying that, you breathe the breath, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and answered them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you have unveiled your truth and created your story, that you let us know before these important things happen that, that they're going to happen so we won't miss them. And yet it's so easy for us to sneer, to not understand, to be perplexed, to not accept and to be in the center of who you are. So be with each one of us today on this Pentecost Sunday 
that whatever next step each of us need to make, that we'll be able to make them. And of course, we'll give you the praise. Amen. I've always found that mocking crowd response uh, to be a fascinating response to this amazing spiritual experience. Here, this competitive, combatant attitude comes out that, well, these guys are experiencing something, so we're going to tear down what they're experiencing. We're going to mock what they're going to do, and we're going to sneer at what they're experiencing because we don't want them to be better or different from us. And so here we have this miraculous moment when people are speaking in all the languages of the world, which should have brought all of them together as they're sharing the great deeds of God and all that he's done. And the response is one of competitive combatants. They sneered and they said, ah, they just must be drunk. They must be filled with new wine. The word, as you can see, that we translate sneered is a fascinating word. It literally means to put to death. In this instance, to try to put to death the amazement and the belief of the people by mocking at them, by sneering at the apostles, by undermining the message of the supernatural event. Now, now think about that. Think about that response to God's presence in the world. Here is one of the most amazing moments in all of human history. The Holy Spirit has come upon all people. Everyone. Everyone can have the Spirit, and the Spirit is working on the heart of every human being. God is with us. Not just in the incarnation, as we know when Jesus took on bodily form, and could only be in one place at one time when he was on the earth, and you had to go to where he was in order to be with him. The Holy Spirit now has come upon all flesh, such that God is with us always, in every circumstance, wherever we might be, and whatever we might be facing. He is there with comfort and conviction and empowerment to help us live a new and powerful life. The Holy Spirit has come upon all people. And yet, what's the response of some? To sneer, to mock, to try to put to death this belief and trust and amazement that we have in God. Over the years, I have had many, many conversations with people about their spiritual walk, about the larger reality of life, about what it means to live in a new place, a deeper place than just this a physical world. And it is interesting to me, and it depends on the personality and the age and other things, but it's interesting to me how often the fear of the mocking crowd causes a person to hesitate to trust in God. What will my buddies think? What will my co-workers say? What will the cool kids at school do? I don't want to be the brunt of their jokes. When Cheryl was in college, her professor, she was a sociology major, uh, asked her to do a study of humor and culture. At that time, they were 
theorizing that humor is a way of identifying the minority groups within a culture because most cultures make fun of and put down a minority group within the culture. We, of course, can say to the minority, oh, can't you take a joke? You know, we're just, we're just having some humor. But everybody knows that satirical, mocking, sneering, competitive put-down is what the humor is all about. So now, that being true sociologically, as Christians, we are a minority. We're often sneered at, made fun of, and so how do you respond to that? What do you do? Well, here Peter gives us a wonderful model of response to a world that would sneer at the amazing things of God. First, we debunk the basis of the mockery by just simply selling the, telling the truth about who we are and what we're doing. Second, we explain that we're part of a great story. His story that has been occurring for millennia. We are simply a part of a story that began with creation and will continue to recreation and beyond. We're a part of the story, the narrative of God. And third, that everyone, men and women, young and old, slave and free, everyone can become a part of God's salvation story, God's wonderful work of love. No one is left out. Every person can be a part of what God is doing. These supernatural events and the God that brought them is for everyone from all the nations that were gathered in Jerusalem that day and that habitat our world today. It's for every one of us. So let's, let's look at each of those for just a moment. The first, that we debunk the basis of the mockery by truth. What is interesting is that Peter is not defensive about what they say. He doesn't come back with some kind of anger. I so often am just, just hurt when I see anger as the response of Christians to the things that are said about us in the world or, or with those with whom they disagree. Peter is not defensive, nor does he argue. He's not angry. We do not have to defend God. He simply does state the facts, though. You know, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. That's quite a stretch to think that we're drunk. Come on. Now, think about your own life. How often do we give credence to the mockers and to actually engage with them in some kind of, of argument that is based on false understandings of us and God and life. I think oftentimes we give far too much um, interest or credence in the, in the mocking crowd. Peter doesn't do it. He simply says, you know, the, the mockery is not true. We are not drunk. But listen with your ears. See with your own eyes. Hear the language of God spoken to you personally. Be present in this moment. Don't defend yourself with some kind of sneering mockery def defensiveness that God is here. Experience God for yourself. Or as Jesus says, taste and see. Come and see. Be with me. Let me 
express it to you and show it to you. And then Peter goes into history and he takes a prophecy that was spoken by Joel about eight centuries before. So we're looking 800 years that people have been expecting for a moment in history where the Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to be available to all people at all times, not just to a prophet for a moment or to a king in a, in a season where the Spirit comes upon someone. The Holy Spirit is now upon you and every person. And so he takes that prophecy and he says, now this is what we're experiencing here. This is not an unidentified spiritual experience. This is what we expected. This is what God said is going to happen. And so he quotes Joel. He explains that God told humanity that in the last days he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Now think about what he's saying. From generation to generation, from century to century, from millennia almost, is 800 years, to millennia, the story of God is told. Each of us get to tell it with our chapter, our moment, our generation, where we're a part of his story and it's being written through us and by us, by the power and the inspiration of the Spirit as each of us are living this wonderful account and narrative of what God is doing in the world. This is not something that was made up by any person now. This is a story that has been told by countless people over millennia of time as God has inspired all of us to understand and to live. It's his story as history is being lived out. And so this quote that he gives that we're seeing in this climactic moment is the moment where the law and stone becomes the love of the heart. And that takes us to where Peter explains that this love of God poured out upon all flesh makes it available to everyone. This isn't about the Jewish people, nor is it about some uh, theological tradition or denomination. This is about humanity experiencing God and God's love changing the human heart. God continues through Joel and he says that your sons, daughters, young, old, slaves, free, men, women, were all a part of the story of God and were all invited to take our place in our generation to be a part of what he's accomplishing and going to accomplish if we want to be a part of it, we can. If we don't, he's still going to accomplish it. But we will be left out of the story. Greater than anything that you or I could ever accomplish individually or together as families or as nations or as businesses or careers, greater than anything in life is to be a part of his story and a part of his solution loving those who are eternal for however long we get them on, on this earth. We get to love them and we get to be in eternity with them. We're a part of the grand story. And then he explains the way we become a part of that story is when we call upon the name of the Lord and appropriate all the forgiveness and authority that that name represents. That in the name of Jesus we are forgiven of our sins. We are cleansed through his power. 
we are able to live new lives following these wonderful ways of God. And we're able to, in fact, make a difference in the world in which we live. Now, I don't know if you've done that. But if you have not, I encourage you on this Pentecost Sunday to open your heart to the Spirit of God, to let him forgive and cleanse and empower you for new service, to be a part of the story of God, to let that love be communicated in every way that you're capable of doing in all the relationships of which you are a part. Pentecost Sunday is a tremendous moment and it can be a moment of transformation within each of us. So let's spend time with God.